Hello and welcome back to this episode of High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode, we will discuss opioid use disorder. I highly recommend you review the episode on opioid analgesics pharmacology, given the fact that we discussed important receptor function, classes of medications, as well as clinical relevant points on metabolism or pharmacokinetics of opioids. In this episode, we will mainly focus on what is categorized on DSM-5 as opioid use disorder, the condition that includes both opioid abuse intoxication as well as dependence and withdrawal. But before that, let's review some terminology, both academic as well as slang terminology that may come handy. What's the difference between opium, opioid, and opiate? Opium simply means extract of plant opium poppy. Opioid means natural or synthetic substances that act at opioid receptors. And opiates are natural alkaloid compounds of opioids, including morphine and codeine. Now, we have synthetic prescription opioids, including oxycodone, hydrocodone, fentanyl, tramadol, and methadone. Then we have opioids that are synthesized solely for the purpose of abuse, and that's, for example, heroin. But we should remember that any opioid medication has the potential of abuse. Now, regarding the slang terminology, what are the lay terms used for heroin? Remember, heroin is diacetylmorphine. The slang lay terms include dope, horse, smack, junk, tar, China white, but different regions of the world could have different terminology. For example, in Asia, it's also the smoking heroin form is referred to as chasing the dragon. What does snorting or sniffing indicate? It means intranasal use. What does shooting or mainlining of an abused drug means? It means IV use. What does term skin popping indicates? It indicates subcutaneous use. And what does the muscling indicates? It means intramuscular injection. What does nodding mean? Nodding just simply means the sedated appearance of heroin intoxicated patients. Compare this to the two other terms used for stimulant abuse and hallucinogenic abuse, which are crashing versus tripping, respectively. What does crashing mean? Crashing indicates psychomotor retardation or depression seen usually in the withdrawal of stimulants, while tripping is the term referring to altered perceptual experience seen in the use of hallucinogens. Now talking about epidemiology of opioid use disorder, what is the most common form of opiates that's associated with opioid use disorder? That's prescription opioid analgesic misuse. What is the most common route of administration associated with overdose? The IV use which is both the most efficient and most dangerous route regarding the possible complications. Now, please make sure you review the opioid receptor function. Just a couple questions. Do you remember what receptor mediates meiosis? That's kappa. 
you remember what receptor modulates mu receptor function that's delta do you remember what receptor is associated with diuresis and dysphoria that's kappa again what receptor is associated with histamine release remember pruritus and vasodilation secondary to histamine release is under the influence of mu receptor and what receptor is not sedating that's delta receptor activity okay there are at least four clinical syndromes that I would like us to have as the framework of our approach to any patient with opioid use disorder. What are these possible clinical syndromic scenarios? One is acute intoxication. So just simply review your cardinal intoxication symptoms based on DSM-5. The other is opioid dependence, formerly known as opioid addiction. So review the cardinal dependence symptoms based on DSM-5. And third is long-term health consequences and complications associated with opioid use and finally is opioid withdrawal or abstinence syndrome any patient who abuses opioids should be first framed into one of these four categories because each one of them could have their different diagnostic workup and management options do you remember the four cardinal symptoms for substance abuse based on dsm-5 yes one is recurrent drug use and inability to fulfill obligations two is engaging in physically hazardous activities three is legal problems and four is interpersonal problems simply recurrent use dangers legal issues interpersonal issues what are the seven cardinal symptoms of all substance use disorders based on dsm-5 i'm just reviewing one need for markedly increased amounts of a substance two diminished effects of substance indicating both the tolerance three characteristic withdrawal syndromes four the substance is being taken in large amounts or over a long period five patient is unable to cut down or control his use of substance six there is significant amount of time spent on activities related to obtaining or using the substance and seven lots of activities are given up because of substance being abused these are cardinal symptoms of substance dependence if a patient uses opioids and develops these symptoms the condition is diagnostic for opioid use disorder if the patient uses stimulants and develops this symptoms it's called stimulant use disorder etc etc you can simply think a substance use disorder is a combination for the symptoms of substance abuse plus symptoms of substance dependence now there is a specific category of substance intoxication also that could also differ from substance to substance but generally it includes findings such as slurred speech dizziness incoordination or unsteady gait impairment in attention or memory stupor or coma nystagmus or double vision i'm just reviewing the general framework of understanding the concept of substance use disorder substance abuse substance dependence and substance intoxication now drawing our attention to specific signs and symptoms in opioid use disorder when should we suspect opioid intoxication again we have altered mental status tranquility or psychomotor retardation decreased attention and memory similar to other intoxications 
but we have a specific symptoms or signs associated with opioid intoxication. What are they? One, myotic pupils. Two, decreased bowel sounds. Three, hypoventilation, which is either due to decreased tidal volume or decreased respiratory rate. Now, what is the best predictor of opioid toxicity or overdose? It is respiratory rate less than 12 per minute. True or false? Pinpoint pupil is a sensitive finding to rule in or rule out opioid intoxication. That's false. Remember, normal pupillary size does not rule out opioid toxicity. Why is it so? Remember, meperidine, a full opioid agonist, has intrinsic atropin-like or muscarinic blocking function, or propoxyphen, the weak agonist, fails to develop meiosis. The same is true on partial agonist antagonists that have kappa antagonistic activity such as buprenorphine and definitely true about all antagonists. None of these produce meiosis and therefore meiosis is not sensitive enough for the diagnosis of opioid overdose. Now we have short-term complications which is complications related to opioid overdose and intoxications as well as long-term health and psychological consequences. What are the short-term complications of opioid intoxication? Respiratory failure, hypothermia, seizure, head trauma, coma, aspiration pneumonia and rhabdomyolysis. In addition to that, can you mention some of the long-term health consequences of opioid use disorder and dependence? First and foremost, think about all kinds of infections, either localized skin infections such as cellulitis and abscess, or those related with needle sharing or syringe sharing such as HIV, HBV, and HCV. And finally, think about systemic and other serious infections such as infective endocarditis, osteomyelitis, pneumonia, and TB. The other long-term health consequences other than infections include opioid-induced bowel syndrome or opioid-induced hyperalgesia. What's opioid-induced bowel syndrome? is a syndrome secondary to long-term use of opioids and associated with constipation, bloating, and early satiety. What's opioid-induced hyperalgesia? It's simply increased pain sensitivity, usually seen with fentanyl family of opioids. What are the other long-term health consequences? We could have leukoencephalopathy, amnestic syndromes, accidents, and the other overdose-related complications. Now, what are the symptoms of opioid withdrawal? The symptoms are developed after the patient receives an opioid antagonist or 4 to 48 hours after cessation of ingesting opioids. The symptoms are mainly defined as flu-like, including yawning, diaphoresis, increased bowel sounds, pyloerection, and midriasis. It's logical to think that if the intoxication is associated with meiosis, hypothermia, constipation, or decreased bowel sounds, or bradycardia, it's logical to think that withdrawal would be associated with midriasis, diaphoresis, increased bowel sounds, as well as diarrhea and tachycardia. However, I would like you to always remember yawning, pyloerection, and rhinorrhea and lacrimation as important hints in favor of opioid withdrawal.
true or false, the patients in withdrawal usually have altered mental status. That is false. Mental status is usually intact during withdrawal. Now, for the diagnosis of withdrawal, how many of these symptoms are required? At least three of these symptoms should be present. Can reduction in use of opioids also result in withdrawal? That is true. Not only cessation or use of naltrexone or other antagonists, which indicates iatrogenic withdrawal, but even reduction in the dose compared to what's commonly used would also result in withdrawal. Okay, now having our four categories in mind, we begin with initial assessment for opioid intoxication or abuse. What are the measures to take for the initial assessment of opioid abuse and intoxication? We first check a rapid bedside blood glucose for all patients and then based on the history and clinical presentation, we order other diagnostic tests. For example, what is the test required if a patient with opioid toxicity has prolonged immobilization? We need to measure creatinine kinase. If the patient has risk of lung injury and aspiration, what's the test to order? Chest x-ray. If there has been risk of self-harm or combination of opioid and acetaminophen use, what's to order? Serum acetaminophen levels. When in patients with symptoms of opioid toxicity, we order ECG. One, if patient was lopramide and we suspect lopramide toxicity, for example, patient who managed diarrhea with lopramide, or if methadone toxicity is suspect. Okay. Now, what is the initial management recommendations for opioid intoxication? Most important initial step is ventilation monitoring with assessment of respiratory rate and O2 saturation. And we classify patients in opioid intoxication based on the results of respiratory assessment. What are the numbers that help triage or categorize patients with opioid intoxication? Respiratory rate and O2 sat numbers. If respiratory rate is more than or less than 12 or if O2 sat is more or less than 90%. If both values are normal, what's the next step? If respiratory rate is at least 12 and O2 sat is at least 90% in room air, we simply observe the patient. If O2 sat is less than 90%, but patient is spontaneously breathing, what's the next step? We provide supplemental O2 and IV naloxone. If patient is apneic, what's the order? We use bag valve mask plus IV naloxone with higher dose. If a patient develops symptoms of withdrawal at any point during management with naloxone for opioid intoxication, what's the order? If the patient has symptoms of withdrawal, we have to stop the infusion of naloxone and evaluate patient's respiratory condition. If the patient has respiratory depression, we need to restart naloxone with at least half of the original rate. Now, next category is maintenance treatment for management of opioid dependence. What's the initial recommendation for all patients with opioid use disorder? Addiction counseling and psychosocial interventions such as mutual help groups like Narcotic Anonymous. True or false, mild opioid use disorder could be managed by 
counseling and psychosocial interventions alone. That's false. Medication is always needed. And in the case of moderate to severe opioid use disorder, medications are considered even first line prior to initiating counseling or psychosocial interventions. It's logical, isn't it? Because patients with moderate to severe use disorder are not yet ready to begin counseling or other psychosocial interventions. Okay, that said, what is the most important factor in the choice of pharmacotherapy for maintenance therapy in opioid use disorder. The choice of first line is determined based on whether or not the patient has withdrawal symptoms or not, meaning that if patient has finished withdrawal or if the patient is currently using opioids. So scenario number one, a patient with mild opioid use disorder has no withdrawal symptoms. What is the management? The management begins with few days of oral naltrexone and is followed by monthly injections of long-term naltrexone. When agonists are first line, the indication for agonists, which is a term that used either to mixed agonist antagonist buprenorphine or full agonist methadone, is one, if the patient is currently using opioids, and two, a patient who has failed naltrexone maintenance therapy. These two group of patients will be managed by agonists, beginning with what type of agonist? Remember, transdermal buprenorphine is the first option in this situation. So can you summarize the indications for use of naltrexone versus the use of agonists? Naltrexone is used for mild opioid use disorder. Naltrexone is used in patients without withdrawal symptoms. Naltrexone is used for patients who have finished withdrawal. And finally, and very importantly, patients in criminal justice settings, such as prisoners or patients whose job are associated with safety, such as those responsible for transportation of hazardous materials or commercial drivers or healthcare workers. These are the people who can't take agonists and should always be treated with naltrexone. What is the management if these people have not finished their withdrawal and therefore they risk severe withdrawal upon initiation of an antagonist? The common approach in these conditions is medically supervised withdrawal before initiating naltrexone. True or false, prior to beginning buprenorphine, the patient should have finished symptoms of withdrawal. That's false. Having finished withdrawal is only required for initiation of antagonists. Now, if the patient who is a candidate of agonist use, for example, patients who are currently using and haven't finished withdrawal, fail to respond to transdermal buprenorphine, what's the next step? We either use long-acting injectable buprenorphine or we use methadone as the last resort. Why methadone is attempted as the last choice? Because of its higher risk of lethal overdose and side effects such as seizure complications. On the other side, buprenorphine's risk of respiratory suppression is much lower than the risk of full agonists such as methadone. Why we incline to initiate management with naltrexone and not the other agonists such as buprenorphine? Usually naltrexone, unlike the agonist, doesn't cause dependence or withdrawal upon its discontinuation 
But second and very important reason is given the fact that naltrexone is an antagonist of mu receptor, if patient relapses during the maintenance phase and takes higher doses of an illicit opioid during the treatment, this naltrexone will prevent the patient from euphoria and therefore the patient will not get the reward and will be able to continue the maintenance therapy better. Third reason that we prefer naltrexone is that in case of poor response or unacceptable side effects to naltrexone, it's much easier to switch from naltrexone to agonist while switching from an agonist to naltrexone usually requires a 10-day window to finish withdrawal from that agonist, be it a mixed agonist antagonist such as buprenorphine or be it a full agonist such as methadone. And how do we manage opioid use disorder in pregnant women? Never attempt iatrogenic withdrawal inductions with opioid antagonists such as naltrexone in pregnant women. Instead, use buprenorphine or methadone. Remember, neither one of these are teratogenic. Now, can you define a typical case of neonatal opioid withdrawal? It's a neonate that's born usually to a homeless mother and has rhinorrhea or nasal stuffiness, diarrhea, sneezing, tremor, and shrill crying that develops into seizure, while physical examination may show pupillary dilation. How do we manage this case of neonatal opioid withdrawal? Usually manage it with opioid tinctures. They are preferred to paragorics. These tinctures are the diluted solutions with antitussive, antidiarrheal, and analgesic effects, while they lack the side effects commonly seen with paragorics due to the other ingredients they have. Do you remember what is a paragoric? Paragoric is a pediatric medication that consists of opium flavored with camphor, aniseed, and benzoic acid. While the category of long-term complications of opioid use disorder would be managed based on the complication, we need to draw our attention right now onto the four very important category, and that's opioid withdrawal. What is the initial assessment of opioid withdrawal? Remember, the diagnosis of opioid withdrawal is usually made by history alone in most cases. However, depending on the comorbidities seen on withdrawal, we may order other labs, such as a patient who has diarrhea or vomiting, we may order CBC and electrolyte assessment. Now, in the cases where history and physical exam are inconclusive for the diagnosis of withdrawal syndrome, what is a test that could be used? There is this naloxone challenge test that could be used, especially if the patient, again, is not pregnant, we give a minimal dose of subcutaneous or IV naloxone and we wait for the symptoms of withdrawal to develop within 5 to 10 minutes. Remember, withdrawal with naloxone is usually a full-blown withdrawal and therefore will clear any doubt about the diagnosis. And finally, and perhaps the most or one of the most high yield subjects in this episode and that is management of opioid withdrawal. What is the most important factor for pharmacotherapy of opioid withdrawal? To figure out if the withdrawal is a natural occurring withdrawal or 
if it is an iatrogenically induced withdrawal. Remember, for naturally occurring withdrawal, in other words, for non-iatrogenic withdrawal, we can use opioid or non-opioid medications. But for iatrogenic withdrawal, that's the withdrawal induced by antagonists of opioid receptors, such as naloxone or naltrexone, we only use non-opioid adjunctive medications. Now, what are the opioid versus non-opioid medications used in withdrawal? The opioid ones that are used for natural occurring medications are methadone or buprenorphine, exactly the ones that we also use for maintenance therapy. These are the long-acting agonists, and that makes them an ideal choice. While for iatrogenically induced withdrawal with naloxone or naltrexone, we use drugs such as alpha-2 agonists, benzodiazepines, promethazine, loperamide, based on the symptoms of the patient. Okay, so how do we initiate management of withdrawal syndrome of opioids? All patients, if dehydrated, receive IV fluids. If the patient has natural occurring withdrawal, we can give them a low dose of either methadone or buprenorphine. And then we use adjunctive drugs for any type of withdrawal based on the patient's symptoms. So a quick review. If a patient has high blood pressure or tachycardia or other symptoms of hyperarousal, what is the medication? We use clonidine, which is an alpha-2 agonist, if hyperarousal symptoms are accompanied by symptoms of sympathetic hyperactivity. What is the drug of choice if the patient has anxiety and dysphoria without CVS symptoms? We use benzodiazepines. What are the uses of benzodiazepines during opioid withdrawals or their indications? One is presence of anxiety or restlessness and dysphoria. The other is for the management of possible muscle cramps. How do we manage abdominal cramps or diarrhea during the course of withdrawal? We give the patient loperamide, which is itself an opioid, or we give non-opioid antidiarrheal such as octreotide or bismuth subsalicylate. What do we use for the management of nausea and vomiting? We use antihistamines such as promethazine or other sedating antihistamines such as diphenhydramine or hydroxyzine. By the way, do you remember what class of drugs promethazine belonged to? Promethazine is a phenothiazine structurally, like the phenothiazine antipsychotics, but we mainly use it in clinic for its antihistaminic functions. Okay, what do we use for muscle cramps in, in withdrawal of opioids? As I mentioned, either benzodiazepines or baclofen. And how do we manage the pain? Ibuprofen or acetaminophen. And this finishes our discussion of opioid use disorder.